0: Stand by for a start. Racing at $210,000 at IZilla done. well done.
1: Hello and welcome to episode 10 of The Shortlist, the official podcast of the Federation of Bloodstock Agents Australia, and of course we all know by now that the Federation exists to develop, maintain, and improve the standards, integrity, and services of bloodstock agents across Australia. Basically, the FBAA is making it easier and safer and more ethical to buy thoroughbreds and trade thoroughbred stock in this country, and that is a very, very good thing. Joining me today to discuss the hot topics of the moment in the world of thoroughbred racing... Uh, Simon Vivian from Simon Vivian Bloodstock, very creatively named Simon, I will say, and Damon Gabbity from Belmont Bloodstock. Gentlemen, thanks for being here, but I believe this is something of a, well, not a reunion, you've seen each other many times over the last many decades, but was there a master and apprentice sort of relationship here at
2: some point of your life? Shark, there was. Good uh, hello to everybody that is tuning in. Look, there was. I was, I was lucky enough to get a, a, a job over with Goodwood Bloodstock in 1984, so quite some years ago. I was one year old. (laughs) I was probably a little older than that. Um, And having gone over there... Um, I was introduced to the, to the existing pedigree team which consisted I think of two people uh-huh. and I was told that there's a, another young chap joining us and it was only a matter of weeks after I'd started with Goodwood myself that, um, that Damon walked through the, uh, the front door. Um, Damon was um, the son of John Gabbity, very active in the WA racing industry, great friend of John Chalmers who was the, the big boss of, of Goodwood at the time. So um, a young 18 or 19 year old wandered into the, uh, into the offices and, um, and sat down and took up being a uh, pedigree writer, which was great.
1: What's your first memory of a young Damon Gabbardy?
2: I probably shouldn't even tell the story, but the truth is he walked in dressed in black, looking like John Travolta did in Greece... As cool as cool, and all of a sudden, about five steps behind him, was his mum chasing him through the door saying, Damon, you forgot your lunch.
1: Oh, fantastic. (laughs) And what was on the menu back then, Damon? (laughs) Good
0: afternoon, shark.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Not then, that face developed much later. (laughs) If there were were prawns, they would have had to have been peeled. (laughs) Thank
0: you, Simon. Good afternoon to you, too, Simon. Fond memories of those days, Ah, uh, Look, it was a great start to life. Simon was my first boss at Goodwood Bloodstock and he taught me how to do pedigrees. Um, it was, we in those days used to do the catalogue by hand. We wrote. Every page of the catalogue. So we had the stud books there, the race results there, and we'd write, This is a fourth file, three to race, two winners, and we'd r- physically write what races they won. It was unbelievably laborious, but a great way to learn. So um, I, I learned from a master. And you learned opinion.
1: something about, and we know you're a great connoisseur of food and drink at the moment, but uh, we also understand that you might have learned something about. Uh gastronomy back in those early days from Simon? Well, Seafood? Well, I
0: was I was a young, you know, sheltered uh, person, probably still am. And I remember Simon and I went out for lunch with a couple of other people, clients, I think, and... um you know, we ordered prawns, and I thought, "Oh, I love prawns; that's good." Anyway, they arrived, and they had their heads and shell- shells and tails, on and I was like dumbfounded. Like, well, what? What? How do I do?
2: Deal with this? What do I do? So, <laughs> Simon had to teach me how to peel the prawns. I think so. Damon, Damon thought that they came, bo- you know, they were born peeled and yeah, right. <laughs> ready so to go. Yeah. I blame my mother for that, as, <laughs> as for a lot of things.
0: Well, fr-
1: from those humble <laughs> beginnings, you've obviously Belmont Bloodstocks become a very recognised uh, brand in in Australian and international. Bloodstock with you work with Arcana and whatnot as well. What would be your specialty area? Where's your niche area? Would you say?
0: Um, I love doing pedigree matings, uh, which is probably from the, the start of learning pedigrees and helping broodmare owners and clients with matching their mare to the right stallion and seeing that go through. You know, you see the foal born, take them through the yearling sales, and then through to the racetrack. So that's really what I love uh, doing the most. It gives you great rewards. For that.
1: And your yearling buying's been pretty good as well. Extravagant star, recent English Millennium buy. Was that your picking?
0: Yeah, that was fantastic. It was uh, one of the biggest buzzes I've received in uh, this industry. Um, we f- we found her in the New Haven Park draft last year at Melbourne Premier, and I said to Tony McAvoy, who I'm doing some work with, I think I've found one here, and I think it'll be a cheapie, second season extravagant. Nobody will be on them, so we should get this for 80 to 100 for sure. And, uh, you know, I must admit I was probably at about 120 saying to Tony, well, that's plenty for her, <laughs> but, you know, he drove on and uh, we got the one we wanted and it's been a great story.
1: And speaking of Inglis, Simon, after Goodwood in those days, you found yourself at Inglis and you are the boss of Bloodstock for many, many years and you helped create the English Premier Sale that spawned Extravagant Star and, and and many other very, very good horses. You were a driving force behind that development.
2: Shark, it was a real pleasure to work for English. I was with them for 17 years. Um, prior to that, I'd actually worked for three years with Magic Million. So was, right. I've had the experience of working with both sales companies and both sales companies are outstanding, you know the great great people to work with and for. Um, but my time at Inglis was probably the uh, the best time that I ever had in the industry. So it was great, you know. Obviously being based in Victoria was terrific, um, and I've, and and working with guys like Peter Hegney and Ian Bed, uh, Mark Dottermaid and the crew has been phenomenal. And then of the of recent years, when when I was the uh, the manager of the Melbourne office and working with young people like Steph Grintel and Brett Gilding and um, just so many other young people it's been wonderful and uh, look, it's, it's it was a very hard decision to to make to sort of wind down a little bit um, and go into a form of semi-retirement but it's been uh, it's been great I've enjoyed that but at the same stage doing a bit of consulting work
1: fantastic well since we're recording this the week of the English Melbourne Premier Sale, we thought we'd better have a bit of a Victorian flavour when it comes to the big issue. And the big issue we're going to discuss today, gentlemen, is the resurgence of the Victorian breeding industry. When you think about the current state of Victorian breeding industry, you've got Ritten Tycoon who's just been bought and recruited and standing out at Yulong and the big money that mytho and the rosemont team are throwing around buying mares and new stallions and everything else like they're your two sort of bigger most obvious shop fronts i guess that are having a bit of an impact but from the point of view both of you gentlemen and your dealings with victorian breeders and farms is there is it a bit deeper than that does the resurgence does the investment run a bit deeper than a couple of the big brand
0: names oh absolutely to make any State and industry success, it has to come from the grassroots up. Um, so it's not just the big players that keep this business rolling along. And there's a lot of depth now in Victoria. A lot of boutique breeders I'd call like Rick Jamison, Gilguy Farm. Bruce Wilson's established Tree Farm and he's become a, a very big force in the last couple of years. Uh, he's really enjoying his racing and his breeding. And then you've got the established people like Bluegum who've been around for years and they're not the high-end player but they're a significant contributor and the leading vendor usually every year. So there's a great amounts of depth in the industry.
1: There's that, there's that nice mix, I guess, of old firm like with blue gum and that family association and and new businesses coming through simon what what sets apart a victorian farm against say one from the hunter what are the key differences that you've noticed over the years
2: Look, I think there's probably a lot of things that come into it, Shark, and Damon sort of touched on a lot of them there. It's it's almost it's, – it's I find a lot of these things, it's a little bit like laughter. It can be contagious. Mm. The attitude has, has been um, evolving over the last – I'd say the last decade, probably even longer than that, but certainly I've, it's become most apparent to me over the last decade where the breeders have got really positive. Now, those names that Damon mentioned, guys like Rick Jamison breeding black caviar, Bruce Wilson coming into it, Robert Crabtree being one of the finest breeders in the country, all of a sudden you've got that – that that those boutique coming those boutique farms coming through mixing in with your blue gums and the established great farms but then as you mentioned you know the the farms like yulong coming in rosemont coming in Spendthrift coming in those sorts of farms that have had a massive dramatic impact just in the positivity of the whole place and i've sensed it here i think when i started probably in 17 18 years ago we would look to probably get maybe 50 to 60% of the melbourne premier catalog coming out of the hunter valley and that was because 60 or 70% of the best horses that we could get get our hands on for Premier were coming out of New South Wales. That's turned around dramatically now where the Melbourne Premier catalogue, whilst we got fantastic support still from the Hunter Valley... The the sale could actually be a successful sale almost exclusively with Victorian bred horses. So it's a positivity like that.
0: I just had a quick look through the Vendors Index in the Melbourne Premier catalogue, which is obviously my Bible at the moment for this week. (laughs) And you look at some of the younger people coming through, like Kalani, who are doing a great job. Mm. Shearer Sullivan's opened up her own uh, establishment. Merrick Station, a young guy called Ben Cooper, doing great things. Musk Creek, David Kobritz. And Newellam Park under Peter Carrick, they're mm. really making a significant difference to this uh, this state. And
1: within those names that you've mentioned, there's some people that you wouldn't call them straight line thinkers. They're happy to try a few different things and and target a section of the market and sort of make that their own. And I was only talking to Shira Sullivan half an hour ago about her farm and where she's looking to expand to after you know a conversation twelve months ago about the first twelve months, and you, you can see the development, the wheels turning in
2: those new businesses, that they're here for a long time, not just a a good time? Many of these gentlemen coming in, or men and ladies are coming into this business, are elite business people from outside of the industry. So That helps, doesn't it? They've developed some wonderful business skills, and they bring those business skills to an industry that maybe to a degree they're a little, little bit new to. But we can also say that we've worked for 20, 30 or 40 years within a bubble to have that injection of great business skills, combining that with the, the knowledge that, that like members of the Federation of Bloodstock Agents can bring to them, uh, you, the combination of, of great bloodstock knowledge with great business knowledge, it's got to work well.
1: The other, I guess, influential player and, and major name around the world is Dali. And the way they've approached Victoria as well in the last few years with likes of Blue Point and Light and Gayath coming to stand in Victoria, how important is it to have that big international brand that's actually giving due respect to a, a jurisdiction like Victoria and putting proper horses into the market here?
0: I think it's vitally important and they showed great faith in the Victorian industry uh, by standing brazen bow when he came off the track as of their hot gun first season sire. Uh, the w- w- The Victorian market and the breeders have got a great broodmare bands and for them to be able to send mares to hot great stallions in Victoria is a massive advantage for them because previously they had to float them all up to the Hunter Valley to get access to the good stallions so Darley's level of investment in Victoria is outstanding and then coming along recently of Rosemont establishing their stallions fund and trying to make a stallion and uh, stand that here in Victoria it all goes well for the future.
1: Now for those people listening that may not be familiar with the process of you know and, and hearing oh we've got to send a mare to the hunter what's the problem with that but there is inherent risk involved with that sort of process isn't there you're putting a mare often a young foal on a float sending it to somebody else's property they're away from your eyes and your care so there's always that that bit of risk that's that's the main sort of issue isn't it
0: risk with, and cost yeah you know cost they have to send it up to the hunter transportation adjustment in the hunter while they're away so risk and cost big you factors
1: Going back and looking sort of in my time when I can think back to, to Stallion, standing in Costa de Lago and the like in Victoria and, and losing them, you know, that leakage north that we did have to those bigger hunter farms, do you think those days are over? Or do you think there's still risk of the next big thing that stands in Victoria that it'll be swept away and,
2: and taken up to the Hunter Valley? I certainly wouldn't say that it's the risk is gone, but it is undeniably minimised compared to those days of of Encosta. I think back then um, the, the phenomenal job that Encosta Delago did, and the fact that he was Coolmore owned, they were able to capitalise him better by being in the Hunter. Whereas now, clearly, and, and Damon made mention of Brazen Bone. There's been a number of other stallions that are going to be standing at elite service fees. We will find that a great percentage of the Queens, uh, the uh, New South Wales breeders will, in fact, send their mares down to Victoria to go to the stadiums if they're here. So, we've gone past that. That th- that we probably once upon a time had a, almost a twenty thousand dollars service fee threshold. Mm-hmm. That's as far as you could go. Now the right horse comes into Victoria, he could stand at 150000 100, dollars. Absolutely, we've we have a tycoon and fully booked. So mm-hmm. yeah, there's so many uh, so many options now that the, I think the the leakage to north of the Murray um, is whilst not gone is very, very minimal now.
3: Adam Timms here. Stable Financial has been helping thoroughbred businesses since before GST started, and we enjoy some incredible, long-standing client relationships. We're very happy to support FBAA and its reputable network of advisors. As the Bloodstock agents facilitate trading opportunities, The Stable makes sure that horse owners, breeders, trainers, and syndicators are getting group one business and tax advice. Please visit our website and get in touch with our awesome team at The Stable. See how we can add value to your horse business and let you focus on finding winners rather than worrying about it.
4: When it comes to the transport of your valuable thoroughbreds, look no further than IRT, the world leader in horse transport. IRT has serviced the international market for almost 50 years with offices in Australia, New Zealand, Germany, the UK and the USA. Their experienced staff are with you and your horse at every step of the journey. IRT are proud to support the FBAA in enhancing and promoting the Australian thoroughbred market. IRT, your horse, our passion.
1: The other change we've seen is one of those typically uh, Hunter studs in Widen moving and opening a, an arm of their business in Victoria. Given the ongoing, I guess, uncertainty around that region in the Hunter with the mining and whatnot, do you think we'll see more of those established New South Wales farms look at properties in Victoria and look to expand operations down here, franchising, uh, if you will.
0: Well, it's a it's a it's a difficult thing to do, and full applaud and admiration for Anthony and the team of Widden for investing in Victoria, and it's been a great um, uh, 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 benefit for their business, I'm sure. And they've launched a couple of new stallions in Victoria, which is a great thing. Um, it's a difficult thing for Hunter Valley studs to invest in Australia you know it splits your resources but you know maybe the likes of Newgate you know might consider it uh, I don't know it's a very difficult one to answer
1: I think it's one of those evolving parts of the landscape isn't it Simon It's to who, who will be the next one to to take that leap of faith because it's not as easy as just sending a few stallions you have to be able to separate your workforce staff it properly and and that's not an easy thing to do at the moment either given the the border issues and and the pandemic that we've all endured
2: sure look you know we have to look back and and see that um, you know a few years ago coolmore were, were quite active in in victoria through uh, through stadium standing at blue gum and we had arrowfield down here previously as well so it's not that it hasn't happened in the past and maybe if it's it's the the situation look we've got, we've got a magnificent property like spendthrift that's in the process of being sold, if one of those farms chose to buy that beautiful property, uh, they walk in here and probably start ha- making an immediate impact. So, uh, it's it's a it's a matter of whether they they see the threat of the mining. Obviously, mm. Widden itself is probably outside of that area, but um, there is obviously clearly a lot of a lot of issues with the mining processes in, through the Hunter. So, I don't, I certainly wouldn't dismiss the idea that some of the bigger farms might look seriously to Victoria. Simon, going back
1: ten and fifteen years ago, I can think of coming to. Oakland's and and Inglis premier sales of the past I remember walking around with people and trainers and buyers and whatnot and hearing premier sales a real type sale you know the pedigree is not so much there it's a real type sale your time at Inglis when did that view change and when did you and the team start to try and change that I guess, that opinion, that it's more than a type sale. It can be both. It can be a source of really well bred horses with great pages as well as super athletes.
2: Look, I suppose it's been, again, just something that's evolved over a period of time. Going back to that that 15 or 20 years ago, there was just a natural pecking order. Number one sale, if you had a horse good enough, you went to Easter. Number two, you went to the Gold Coast. And Melbourne became the number three sale. Um, We were often... As you said, we were probably not able to get the, the high-profile pedigrees, so we decided that we would deliberately focus on confirmation because at the end of the day, your principal buyers are your trainers and your trainers want to buy something that's physically an athlete. So I went down that path and I remember having conversations with some of the Victorian breeders who were selling outside of the state and said, look, you know, why don't you support us better at Premier? And the answer was things like, well, the minute you showed me that you can get... Five hundred thousand dollars for a horse at Premier. I'll support you. And I said, "Well, it's it's hard for me to get five hundred thousand dollars for a horse at Premier without having a five hundred thousand dollar horse in the sale." Mm. But eventually, of course, we started getting horses that had that price tag lapsed around their neck. And and, and at the same time, the, uh, the 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 wonderful breeders of Victoria started to look to their own uh, their own sales company sales base here at Oaklands. And I think it's just it's just been one of those things that people have seen it. Next thing was that the the um, the, the probably the principal buying bench of yearlings in the Southern Hemisphere are Victorian-based trainers. And so they're on they're on the doorstep here at, at Oakland. So that's been a positive as well.
0: And we were helped with the rise of, say, a written tycoon coming through the ranks, yeah. standing in Victoria. And, you know, you had breeders going to him. And as his star shone, uh, the yearling prices got better and stronger as well. Mm. So those progeny, well, I think last year, Dorrington got uh, Fire bluegum 1.1 for a written tycoon cult. So Victoria's proven that you can get a million dollar plus for the right model.
1: Going back a few years as well, Racing Victoria really pushed this uh, story that Victoria was the home of the stayer. And it was the home of staying racing and, you know, young stayers, Melbourne Cups, all that sort of thing. And that was a real... Home hit home point for them in terms of promoting the, the racing and and what set Victorian racing apart. And to a degree, Inglis followed with Blue Ribbon sections of sales and more classic sort of bred horses. Where do you see that sort of promotion from a Melbourne Premier Sale point of view is, do we need to specifically promote that style of horse? Or, Damon, do you just let the buyer find what they want? And if they want a classic horse, that's what they'll find.
0: Well, the the Blue Riband was Simon's baby, I remember, at the time. And uh, it was a great success mm. uh, when it ran for probably three to four
2: years. What we found was that to sell yearlings by staying stallions, those staying stallions had to have already proven themselves to be good size. So at the, when we started Blue Riband, horses like um, Zabeel, High Chaparral, Street Cry, were still active and still producing yearlings. Then, all of a sudden, we lost a lot of those, yeah. one way or another. And it, with with a staying stand, you pick a horse like Extreme Choice, a young, speed, two-year-old comes off the track. People go to them straight away. You get a horse that gets over a bit of ground. Pick a horse like Fioronte. People want to see them start to perform before they start to warm to them. So we found that it became a little bit more difficult to fill the sessions of Blue Riband because... We with a deliberate focus on on stallions that were able to get runners, that the purpose behind it was three year-olds that could run a mile or further. That was the sort of general focus. So you'd look at your guineas and cups types of horses. but we just found it hard to access the stallions. that was the truth now. so but I think look, there's a there's certainly a place for them, but I think trainers just want to buy a nice horse don't
0: And they? at the moment, those stallions are staying type ones are littered through a catalogue. So don't, there's no need for a dedicated section for them anymore. They're, they're, they're there. We can all figure out which ones are the staying types and focus on them if we want to. And the other
1: benefit, I guess, of COVID has been we've seen more New Zealand farms come over with those style of horses. There's more Tavistocks. There's more Savabills. Those sort of horses that probably are more predetermined to get out to a middle distance. So their involvement in the sale has, has also been a positive.
0: Absolutely. It's... uh. Better vary, more variation of stallions and studs, the better it is for a sale.
1: Do you think this sale still punches? Uh, I guess in that sort of under the radar, slightly category. You look at the honour roll in recent years that have come through like Nature's Trip, Mars Crusade, Ole Kirk, Written By, Santa Ana Lane, Gee Trout. Like there's some seriously good horses there, and seriously fast horses there. September Run, Kenedna, Young Star as well. Uh, the the quality that it produces. Versus, I guess, the perceived quality of, of the horse that it comes through. It's,
2: it sort of outweighs what the perception might be. Sometimes you get – maybe I got too close to it to actually try and – you'd always feel with it with Premier because Premier was my my absolute baby. Mm. Whilst Inglis was the company I worked for, Premier was my my baby. I always felt like at times it was slightly more harshly judged and assessed – in a, in, a, in a pre-sale and during a sale circumstance, um, but that might have been just because I felt that rather than, than any other reason. Look, clearly any sale can produce high-quality horses, but Premier has got a fantastic record, and you made the comment earlier, Shark, about the fact that you know, we work back to trying to select horses with, with quality confirmation. I think that's proved its way through to the racetracks, and we've had some great success.
0: Out of that honour roll, you left off the great black caviar. Yeah. So well, it's, well, true. Yeah, it's,
2: exactly. It's just the number proven, one banana. This sale's
0: proven that it can produce some outstanding horses, and I think that's why all trainers, buyers, agents are represented here. And at all Because you price can't ranges. afford not to be.
1: That's the other key, isn't it? all price ranges, and you mentioned Extravagant Star and thinking you're going to pinch her at 80 to 100, and you think, well, that is a reality at this sale. You know, you don't have to be spending – above the average, to get a nice horse, you can legitimately pick out something in that bracket. Exactly. And you've got just as much chance as the next person.
2: Absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Well, he tried that, made almost 40,000. That's right. So you can buy a really high-quality horse for not having to spend a lot of money. And the VOBA scheme
1: helps as well, doesn't it? Like, arguably, that would probably be the best breeder incentive scheme when you look on a global scale, and it's tried to be replicated and, and, and tweaked in different jurisdictions all over the place. But what... What role does a Vobus sticker have for you, Damon, when you see that on a horse's backside in an auction ring?
0: It's very important. If you're buying for somebody who's racing a horse in Victoria, it's a huge advantage to have the Vobus qualification sticker there. I mean, at the end of the day, you're buying the type you want, but if you're tossing up between the two types, I like more that, I can't decide between those two, and one's Vobus and one's not. If you're a Victorian trainer or owner, you'll go the Vobus one. It sways your decision, without doubt. The different
1: categories involved category c is sort of often spoken about as a bit of a controversial point you know that you can send a mare basically outside of victoria and still get it v- Vobis qualified what you what are your views on that
2: i look up a bit with damon that i, I just simply love the idea of horses that are Vobis qualified i understand and respect there are people that are very much pro category c and there are others that are very much anti-category c and that just depends on which one so which circumstance you fit into? Um, I don't fit into... I'm not a breeder, so I don't fit into either. So for me, I'm very happy just to have, as a salesperson, very happy to have horses that are in there that are v- super qualified. Each one of those people are paying. They're funding the, the process. The people that come into Category C pay three times what the people in Category A pay. So, look, I'm... Personally, I, I, I think it's it's... It's pretended to be a little bit of a storm in a teacup for me. I think that the the industry is in is in phenomenal shape, and and Vobos is one of the contributing factors.
0: I think Category C is a great advantage for this for the state because it's bringing uh, it's upgrading quality mm. uh, and it's helping Victorian breeders send their mares to New South Wales stallions and then bring them back and qualify them for Vobus here. So it only can be an, a positive for my way of thinking.
1: It will be very interesting as stud farms like Rosemont gain more prominence and more strength in the market. And if Mytho decides, as I think he's decided, that category C is not a good thing or that we need we need to I guess tax it more heavily uh, for those that want to pursue it. It'll be interesting to see the influence of those Victorian studs as they as they gain more influence over Vobos and Racing Victoria around changing that and how easy that is to change.
2: There's a lot of the boutique farms that we mentioned that spend a lot of money in the Hunter Valley but bring them back and sell them here in Victoria, have their horses racing in Victoria and availing themselves of, of, of Vobus. So I think that, as I said before, it, c- it just depends a little bit on which side of the fence you sit on, but um, I think we've got to be respectful of all the parties. Agree.
1: Gentlemen, talk to me about the COVID yearling sale boon. I think when the pandemic started, and we're all running around, hands in the air. The sky's going to fall <laughs> down and crush us all, and we're all going to be dead in months for this terrible virus. uh It, it did have an impact; it, it things did grind to somewhat of a halt. But then, very rapidly, picked up momentum again, and that momentum has just been sustained over the last eighteen months to two years. And and we're seeing record yielding sale prices and. And record weanling sale prices as well, with some of the trainers going and spending megabucks.
0: No, but obviously none of us are old enough here, or maybe you, Simon, to have experienced a pandemic previously. I can tell you a little bit about Noah's Ark, if you like. <laughs> <laughs> the so nobody. The days when
1: you had to peel your own prawns. So,
0: <laughs> <laughs> so nobody knew how a pandemic would it would affect anybody. But um, I remember talking to the the great John Masara, and he said what he predicted would happen with real estate, stock market and horse prices that would all go down the opposite happened and everything went up so i think it was a shock to even the smartest of brains like masara mr masara sorry um, of what happened and what we've learned through it is how much money we spend travelling and how much money we spend on other other things things and when we can't go out and do those how much more money we've got in the bank um, which has gone through gambling buying horses people sitting at home watching the races Betting's gone through the roof. Syndications have gone
2: through the roof. It's been fantastic for everybody. I think the 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 fact that racing was maintained, yeah. and telecast, highly visible, when a lot of other things were we were not able to enjoy. Mm. I think that that stimulated a degree of interest that probably people had perhaps either moved away from or hadn't been introduced to previously. I think also, I really, I think we've got to compliment our trainer ranks. I think that they, once upon a time, a trainer would almost be buying a horse and going and sit, sitting on a hay bale outside the the, uh, the sales complex waiting for the next horse to go into the ring. Nowadays, the, the trainers are particularly aggressive in their in their marketing. They've got a great team of people around them. So they've left no stone unturned in getting horses sold. And when you speak to these trainers, they're spending a lot of money at an individual yearling sale. Pick the, the sale at the Gold Coast in January. It would be interesting to speak to some of those high-profile trainers who spent a lot of money... And, and find out what they've still got left over because I think they've they've pretty well got them placed and that's because they've been aggressive with their team in getting on the, on the front foot and involving people um, in taking smaller shares. Once upon a time, a trainer wanted a horse to be owned by one man. Yeah. Now he's quite happy to have 100 people own that horse. <laughs> and I think there's been... You know, we've made the comment about syndication, but it's it's been a very, very important part of our business. Absolutely,
0: you and go- continue to be.
1: So if we generally accept that there's extra money in the racing economy because it hasn't been spent in travel and other things. As borders open, as they did on uh, last Monday with you know visa holders able to come back in and we we're able to go out and travel again, as people return to normality and, and normal spend, are we going to see a correction in this yielding sale market? Will things sort of pull back a little bit? Will they
0: slow up? Uh, I'm not, not Nostradamus, but um, you'd think there could be a correction, but... All I know is every yearling sale I've been to and Broodmare sale for about the last 10 years, I th- go away thinking, boy, that was expensive. It can't get any big better than that next year, can it? And it does. So <laughs> the juggernaut and the roller coaster has kept going up uh, without signs of coming down. So I don't know if there'll be a correction. I can't see it at the moment unless there's a huge economic event
2: in the world. Um,
1: GFC, what do you think, Simon? Did we see things fall off the perch in the GFC,
2: Simon? Yeah, we've had look, we've had tough times, chuck There's no question. We've been through situations where um, yielding sales... Look, I, I tend to rate the, the the blood stock market, the consumer blood stock market, as being like the hairs on the tail of the dog. So we tend to react late. So if, if we end up with a, a GFC or a or a major issue, you know, whether that ends up being um, a war or or you know. We, you, we, you would think necessarily, you would think a pandemic, but that didn't seem to occur. Look, I think we've probably been saying that things are going to, things can't be this good forever, and we started saying that 10, 12 or 15 years ago, and yet we're, saying, so we're still managing to get record sales, record averages, record aggregates, unbelievable clearance rates through the ring. So, look, I, um, we don't want to be doomsayers in any way because I think look, we just have to ride the waves that's put in front of us. We're going to, if there is some form of, of uh, economic change worldwide it will have an effect on most markets uh, we've got we're very very blessed with the broad spectrum ownership um, this country offers it better than any other country so look I I'm, I'm a bit with Damien you know it's, you know, you don't want to be saying that there's going to be a change logically if you sit here and say look if you, if you keep saying it one day it's going to happen but at the moment we're full strides full, you know, full, full steps ahead
4: mm.
1: Breeze have very much been making hay while the sun has shown in the last couple of years but is there a risk that they could get caught in this market if it did slow down, and and how big is that risk? And strategically, as agents, do you have that conversation with your clients? Do you sort of have that? We're in a high-risk industry, in
0: We're in a high-risk industry. Why are well, we focusing on the on the risks?
1: Well, but that's the thing because it is inherently high risk. We're dealing with flighty animals that would rather run away from something than stand and fight it so it immediately lends itself to to potential accidents do you have to have a risk mitigation strategy with your clients that
0: i think in a in a portfolio of brood mares from a from a breeder you have to have balance so you can't send all your mares and they wouldn't all deserve it anyway but all your mares to top end expensive stallions because that is a huge high risk strategy so you have to average it out so your exposure going into the yearling sales market is is something you can afford because with all the extra hurdles we've got of x-rays and throats and things like that to deal with there's going to be some um, problems we're going to have all the way so breeders have to balance their risk out in my opinion
4: when it comes to the transport of your valuable thoroughbreds look no further than irt the world leader in horse transport IRT has serviced the international market for almost 50 years with offices in Australia, New Zealand, Germany, the UK and the USA. Their experienced staff are with you and your horse at every step of the journey. IRT are proud to support the FBAA in enhancing and promoting the Australian thoroughbred market. IRT,
3: your horse, our passion. Adam Timms here. Stable Financial has been helping thoroughbred businesses since before GST started and we enjoy some incredible long-standing client relationships. We're very happy to support FBAA and its reputable network of advisors. As the Bloodstock agents facilitate trading opportunities, The Stable makes sure that horse owners, breeders, trainers and syndicators are getting Group 1 business and tax advice. Please visit our website and get in touch with our awesome team at The Stable. See how we can add value to your horse business and let you focus on finding winners rather worrying about it.
1: Yeah, our quality brood mares, for instance, are they, like, as close as you can get to bricks-and-mortar investment, blue-chip sort of stock? Are brood mares your sort of fail-safe that sits
2: in the background? Look, a brood mare, a brood mare early would seem to be fairly fail-safe. Um, clearly, once a mare is started to have three, four or five foals, her race record almost becomes irrelevant. Mm. It's her produce record that starts to become more, more dominant. What has been an interesting evolution over my 40 years in the industry, was that probably back in the early days, the female part of it, the female pedigree, was probably a very much a, a dominant force in the sales ring. So if you, if you apportioned um, confirmation, stallion appeal and female f- family appeal, you would sit back and say that probably the female was contributing at least 50% of the weighting and then confirmation and stadium might have been 25% each. Right now, I would have to suggest that the, the two heavily weighted factors are the confirmation, Trainers want to buy an athlete and the stallion. So the female, while she still has a, f- a massive impact on the probably the racetrack performances in the sales ring. Strangely enough, the 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 two dominant forces seem to be confirmation and stallion. So it's just been an interesting change.
0: Yeah, I agree. Confirmation has become very important. There's. It might be controversial here, but I went to the Classic sale recently and I thought there was a complete lack of respect for pedigree. You know, people were paying a lot of money for just a fantastic type and it could have been an eighth foal for two winners, you know, but and it might not have been from a champion side, but the type was there, so they they attacked and paid 150000 for it. So... Pedigree, uh, in some situations, lost a little bit of respect, in my humble opinion. So two great pedigree
1: men here and students of pedigree. Historically, has that been a good move to just literally put all your eggs in one basket in in confirmation-wise and and buy the athlete regardless of pedigree? Or does the
2: page win out overall? I think at the end of the day, the three factors win out collectively. They're the confirmation, the stallion and the female – will win out on the racetrack. In the sales ring, it can be a little bit different. So that's the, that's the, the challenge. Sometimes, and look, I've, having been involved with both very closely with Magic Millions and specifically with Inglis, when you go to select a catalogue, we, get, we would get over 2,000 nominations for a Melbourne Premier Sale. We are trying to select a commercial catalogue. So you're trying to pick, in reality, you're trying to pick the 780, 790 most valuable and Sometimes you would actually not put in a horse that you really like, and you thought this this thing could end up being a really smart racehorse, but he might only make forty or fifty grand. This one I don't particularly like, but because of the sire and because of the confirmation, um, I think it could make two hundred thousand. You would always weigh you, your weighting would go to the horse that's going to make the most money. So sales rings and it's a bit of sorting the wheat from the chaff in, in that way. I think so. It's been a that part's been a bit of a challenge. It was always a challenge selecting a catalogue.
1: So many moving parts. This is why you need to reach out. If you're buying a racehorse or a broodmare or anything with four legs, that's going to end up potentially at a sale or producing something. At a sale. You've got to talk to an FBAA agent. You just have to.
2: Well done, Shark. Great plug there. Like that little plug at the end. Well, I, think it's <laughs> Im- I think it's important. It's important for people to I – mean, I, I used to sit back and say that you know, I would no sooner rewire my own house or – or unblock my own drains, than then fly to the moon. But a lot of people come into this industry without consulting people that have been doing it for a long time. And the the, the Federation of Bloodstock Agents of Australia gives people an opportunity to access information, um, and generally that information, I think, is outstanding value. Um, a lot of it's for free. See um, those wise
1: words? Very wise words. Very wise words. And is that why you joined the Federation, Simon, Like coming back around to it? Because you would have seen all sorts of types of buyers here and, and, inverted commas, experts and rogue operators and everything else. You're aware of who's who in the zoo when you're working for a sales company. Was it important for you to be associated with uh, the association?
2: Well, look, I, I was an inaugural member when the when the Federation was first... Um created some 40 years or 35 years ago something like that Um, and what at that stage it was dedicated to to bloodstock agents and then when i went and started to work with a company called qbbs in queensland i worked for a sales company and as a result that effectively disqualified me and so i then was not able to be a member because of where i was working although um of more recent years magic millions and english were represented and still are represented and I, i would attend meetings on that basis but when i Went into semi-retirement, um, but still focused my in- energies on on consulting and doing some bloodstock work. I was invited to come back into the federation, and um, very very happily rejoin because I believe in the credibility of the of the federation. I believe in the credibility of the respective participants and members of the federation. I think it's a um, it's a it's a, a great bonus to anybody coming into it to know that they can ring and speak to somebody who has got integrity and also works to a code of ethics that's. Um, that's, that's governed. I think that's, you know, you know we all work off of contracts, and so everything, you, everything that's done is done in a very professional and honourable way. Well said, Simon. Thank you, Damon.
1: Now, gentlemen, before I let you go, I've got a couple of quick ones to throw at you. I guess more esoteric sort of questions. If you're going to change one thing in the industry, Damon, what would you, you want some thinking time? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I know it's not a deep, visual medium, but you're waving your hands around like you don't <laughs> want to answer it first. But, Simon, is there an aspect that, that you think needs addressing? I know we're all racing for the highest prize money and all these pop-up races and everything else. There's innovation going on in racing, but is there an area that you think could
2: use some innovation? Look, I think... I think we've got it pretty well right, and, and every time somebody comes up with a new idea, sometimes we look at these these big four, five, ten, fifteen million dollar races and, and and think of them as a, as a um, perhaps a, a to a purist, you know, it's not quite a, a Cox Plate or a, or a Caulfield yeah. Guineas, but the reality is that it creates a focus. So I think there's a lot of innovation being done. If I could think of one little thing, and it is only a little thing, go back to the early days of Vobus. There was um, an aspect for, and this is promoting stallions for within the state of Victoria. There was a a contribution made by stallion owners. They might have been contributing one service fee into the pot of Vobus and they then got an opportunity to lick the ice cream. So there might have been a 10% ratio of the prize money that's paid out would go to the nominating stallion. What that did was that uh, if a stallion was doing well, let's pick a stallion, for example, like Showdown or Century, because I'm going back pre um, Vobis time, um, but if if Showdown was winning, Showdown progeny were winning races at Flemington and Caulfield, etc., then Stockwell Stud would have been getting bonuses for that, which would put additional funding into them to buy more stallions. So I like the I, sound of this. If I could, I would love to see a stallion contribution and a stallion percentage. It doesn't need to be big, but it would encourage people that are breeders in the state of Victoria with stallions to probably. Um, invest continue to invest in stance because there's a chance of being able to put their weight put their money behind their their weight
1: i think last four episodes i've asked this question no, i don't want to just put sure, pressure on you my innovation now, yeah I've i'm gonna say but that's probably the best one i've had so <laughs> you, you've well, got to follow
0: that my <laughs> innovation would be um we encourage people to get into this industry very heavily i think we've got to get them get them out of uh, just as well. And I'd love to see a series of expensive prize money maiden races mm. because the high prize money races you have to qualify for and it takes a lot of time. Often some horses only win one race. And a lot of these new investors and syndicates, if their horse wins a race and then they earn enough money to be pay for it and be out, they'll go back in again. So, and I think they have a series of these races in Europe and in France especially. They become very high quality races because everyone's targeting them. So, if you had a $200,000 maiden at Flemington or at Caulfield every Saturday, I think it'd have full fields, which would be great for betting and help our investors recoup their investment straight off the bat. And that'll ensure that they keep investing. And
1: proper prize money breeds proper horses as Absolutely. well. You know, you're not going to get. Terrible horses going to those maidens, you're going to get real horses and yeah. probably those races will be great form references
2: too. Exactly. One other thing that I'd like to do, just just thinking about it, because it was a bit of on-the-spur-of-the-moment type of answer, but I would actually like to see entry onto racecourses free. I'd like to see mums and dads be able to sit back and take their kids onto a racecourse and introduce them without having to... Fund fifty bucks to get onto the track yeah. in the first place. Because probably at they, that they, point
1: now, aren't
2: we? Oh well, if we if they walk on with a the fifty dollars, they're probably going to spend it by having a bet and buying a pie. So let's get young people back. We don't see that that same group of young people venturing their way through the the, the the gates. We probably need to give them an incentive, and the incentive could be come to the races. It costs you nothing. You can buy beer and a champagne, but come onto the track, and it's it's gr- a great day's entertainment for free.
1: Thank you very much, Simon Vivian, Damon Gabity, for joining me. On the shortlist, it was some great insights and some great conversation. I very much enjoyed it. Thank no, you both. Pleasure, Shark. Thanks,
0: Shark. Thanks, Simon.
1: And thanks to everyone for listening. And remember, if you are looking for advice regarding any bloodstock-related matter, talk to an expert and go to bloodstockagents.com.au. And as Damon, Simon and myself have reminded you repeatedly during this episode, get in touch with an FBAA member.